Um, welcome to the Saturday morning meetup. Uh, I will give you my usual spiel. I am uh, recording this. If you don't want your question to be recorded, just let me know and I'll turn off the recording. Um, but otherwise, here we are. Does anybody want to talk about any uh, sort of earlier stage stuff first? Sounds like a resounding no. Okay. Uh, well, does anybody want to talk about anything? Or we could just sit here and stare at each other. Okay, well, it's been great seeing you all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have something yeah, I, I can ask. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, I was listening to the previous podcast that you released, uh, and in one of them, you and Sam were discussing about uh, motivation and about how how to motivate yourself to do things after craving and aversion drops off considered considerably, mm -hmm. and that's something I have been struggling for a while and uh, I work from home so in my case I have already developed a, a kind of a, a system to make myself work whenever I need to even when I don't feel like doing it but at the same time I have noticed that it's sometimes hard to not be to not rely on craving and aversion to, to work Yep. And what I've, what I've been trying to do, well, there, there are two things that I think that play a role here. And the first one is that there is always a little bit of a version left. So even if it's not the same, so you don't, you don't work for fear of losing your job, for example. But there is, there is still an aversion either to disappoint someone or even on the other hand, uh, aversion to the work itself. So one of the things I have been doing is meditation on that aversion. Why, why don't I feel like doing this? Why, why is keeping me? If, if I know that this is, is a good thing to be doing, why am I, I am not uh, willing to do it? So that's one thing. And the other thing that I, I think is more I don't know, it's deeper, is that it feels as if you had to develop a new kind of motivation. And uh, I, I know you, you discussed a little bit about uh, using joy, but uh, in my meditative experience, joy hasn't been a really big part. So um, actually, uh, meditation helped me, helped me a lot uh, getting out of depression, but it never got me to a point where I can feel joy meditating. So I have been in that middle ground where, okay, uh, I, I don't have any big issues, but at the same time, I don't have anything huge motivating me to go forward and do stuff. And I, I was wondering if you had any development since then and if you had any resources to share about specifically 
how to develop that new type of motivation that is not necessarily joy, but at the same time is not simply aversion or craving. So um, I actually don't use joy as motivation, although if, if, if you can, that's great. Um, but what I use for motivation is just like, does somebody want this? Somebody could be me, right? Doesn't have to be like craving, just like want. Um, and that can be really helpful. Uh, if, if you're doing work and somebody needs the work that you're doing, um, keeping in mind that they actually need the work that you're doing can help. Um, so uh, you may find it helpful, for example, to, uh, you know, when you, when you start work in the morning, just like review who's, who is this benefiting? And of course, you may find that, that when you do that review, the answer is nobody. Uh, the only reason that I'm doing this is because it's going to produce money. Uh, and if that's the case, it may actually be necessary to find a different thing to do um, or else just because otherwise you're, you're basically the only way you're going to be able to motivate yourself is, is fear of not having money. Uh, I mean, you can try to motivate yourself with just like, I would like to have money, but that's pretty, pretty flimsy. Um, so, so, but it needs to be done as to me is like the, the, the main motivation, like, uh, and, one of the things to say about what's going on for you may be that, that uh, so you have aversion to doing whatever it is you're doing. There's a couple of ways that aversion can come up. First of all, if you've been working for a long time and when you, and on the same job uh, or the same career, um, then before the aversion and the, and the, the desire dropped, um, you were probably habitually motivating yourself with some kind of self-hatred or fear, right? Um, these are very typical motivations. And what can happen is even though normally you're not experiencing a lot of aversion or craving, um, when you go back into the habit pattern of doing your job, suddenly all of the other things that, that, that you were doing, that you've historically done at your job, come along with that habit pattern. And that includes the old craving or aversion. It might not be as strong anymore, but it probably, it could easily be still there. So um, one of the things that you have to do when you get into this place where craving and aversion have dropped a lot is um, start really paying attention when you're working to each time that the aversion comes up. So if you're sitting there in front of the computer and you're not feeling like, oh, I'd like, or I mean, this is me, right? I sit in front of the computer. I don't know what you do, but, but whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, if, if you're sitting there and you, you, you need to do your work and you're just not really feeling like it, well, if you notice that you're not feeling like it, this is a really good time to investigate, like, what's going on? Why am I not feeling like it? And it's not so much to investigate it in the sense of coming up with an answer because a lot of times you won't be able to come up with an answer because really there isn't any reason. It's just a habit, right? And so, um, so really what you're doing is you're, you're kind of forming this intention to investigate what's going on. And then that intention uh, triggers an investigation that actually kind of occurs in the unconscious mind. And um, 
you know, I make no promises that, that this will always have this effect. But for me, quite frequently what happens is um, when I do this investigation, whatever the aversion is drops. And, you know, it comes back again after a while, right? It's not, it's not a perfect solution. But, but if you keep doing that over time, it comes back less frequently. And then eventually you'll find yourself like sitting in front of the computer or sitting in front of whatever you're sitting in front of or whatever and uh, doing the work and you'll have forgotten to have a version. Like that habit will, will no longer be happening all the time. It'll still, still happen sometimes, but, but it won't be as common. And, and so you might find yourself go for an hour sitting in front of the computer or whatever and um, just you know, it's not like you're having a blast or anything, but you don't have a problem with it. It's fine. You're, you're perfectly happy to do it. Um, that's not great. I mean, it'd be nice if you were like having a blast, if, if like you were just like the whole time, but you know, it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> so, um, and you know, generally speaking, the other thing is if you're not experiencing joy in your, in your day-to-day life, um, it might be worth exploring whether that is an, a lack of joy or whether that is a presence of something that is preventing the joy from arising. Because there's a tendency to assume that joy is not the default state, that joy is something extra. Uh, and so what I'm suggesting is that you investigate whether or not that's true. You may find that that's not true. Um, just, you know... It's something such as that it shouldn't be preventing the joy. What do you mean? What's something preventing the joy? Uh, so generally speaking, what's going to be preventing the joy is like some very uh, low-level feeling of self-hatred or dissatisfaction that's just sort of habitual. And if you can notice it happening or just even investigate, like if you're sitting there like doing nothing and you're not feeling happy, you can just ask the question, why am I not feeling happy right now? And see what transpires. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? But just investigate. See what happens. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Oh, yeah, sure. Mike, the question was, uh, like, if, if you're in a place where craving and aversion have dropped a lot, um, how do you motivate yourself? Because normally we're motivated by craving and aversion. So. Okay, uh, does anybody else want to raise a question? Or uh, Gilbert, you, you unmuted a while ago. Did you want to say something? No. Okay. I've got uh, something. Okay. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD after suspecting I had it for quite a while and uh, just about Mm, a year or a half a year ago, something like that, started taking, after a couple of different trials of different medications, started taking uh, Ritalin for, to treat that. Um, and it has been very helpful, but I'm now sort of getting a little bit, uh, not sure what the right word is, like not, I don't like the idea of having to rely on that for the rest of my life to maintain stability of attention um and like it has i i i think uh like when i meditate after having taken it the 
like my ability to direct and sustain attention is stronger as one might uh, anticipate. But uh, yeah, I'm just not sure. Like, and then when I, on, I do take days off from it uh, and then the meditation sessions there are very hazy and um, full of mind wandering, uh, like early stage two level <laughs> of mind wandering. Um, and so I've been sort of waffling on what to do with <laughs> that uh, experience. And I don't know if anybody here has had experience with those things. Um, but even if not, um, oh, it's good someone has. <laughs> um, even, even if not, um, anybody might have suggestions on where to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> So if somebody in the chat said, yes, I've had that experience too, I wouldn't mind hearing you share your experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so I can relate to everything you've said there. Um, and I've experienced the same feeling um, both with um, ADHD medication and with antidepressants. Um, just like, why do I need a pill to do something and just not liking that? It almost feels like I'm lacking something. So that was a real struggle. I didn't want to, I wanted to find another way to handle all of it. And that wasn't very productive line of thought. Is the only thing I can say. <laughs> um, I actually finally had to kind of speak with Chula Dasa and he was like, with the antidepressant, he was just like, it sounds like you're depressed. You know, why not try it? And that was kind of like a permission from a, an authority that kind of let me try it. And, um, I can say I'm glad I did. <laughs> um, but so that's just about the kind of the attitude towards medication in general um, regarding, I don't think I have to worry too much about antidepressants affecting meditation directly because it's not something that has a daily cycle like ADD medication does. And I definitely can notice the same patterns you noticed. Um, and the truth is everybody has things that causes patterns like that. Maybe not quite so easily identifiable. Um, and it's just kind of what happens. And I guess in some sense, knowing that knowing what's causing it is almost reassuring. Um, or can be, um, and I definitely try to sit when I'm more alert just because it's more fun that way and I'm less likely to add frustration to it, but I will say that 
um, that meditation kind of becomes a habit in some sense. And that there, oh, I actually think that one of the reasons I progressed so quickly in meditation when I first started was also related to my mind-watering tendencies, just kind of the same aspect of the mind. Um, it might be related to awareness or something. So it kind of helped. And there's so many subtle differences in ADHD for different people. So this doesn't necessarily apply to just anybody, but um, the fact that I was have always been so easily distracted by so many different things also meant that there were so many different things entering my awareness at all times. And that that actually eventually is quite a boon um, to be able to have things just, um, a lot of people have trouble dropping filters and That's still, I still feel like I have trouble dropping filters, but just having more coming through, just, I don't know. It's something I don't know if I can articulate, but I do think that, and actually Chula Dasa himself has said that once you get past the initial stage, a lot of people with ADHD tend to just kind of, um, everything, a lot of things just tend to fall into place. Um, and so there's a lot of pluses too, surprisingly enough. Um, so this is just, I mean, this, there's no simple answer to the situation, um, but it's just kind of a different experience than everybody has a different experience and this one just has a typical flavor and it's kind of nice to know that other people have the <laughs> similar experiences, but um, it's interesting. It's actually becomes a pattern that's interesting to watch, actually. Um, and sometimes things can be learned from it. And I have had times where my attention and alertness were just kind of really good in spite of not you know, being on anything, and it's just, and so it's, it also becomes easier to recognize other factors as they become very clear of what the difference is like, because a lot of people don't notice as easily, it, that eventually it might make it easier to notice, notice subtle differences too, if you're used to watching differences. I don't know, those are just a whole bunch of the experiences I've had. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to, yeah. I think, I think some, some of the things you said, I definitely related to and uh, definitely gives me some things to ponder, but I appreciate, and there's a, a comment in the, the text chat um, that sort of was along the same lines of some of the things you were saying about how, you know, it's uh, just because like taking medication doesn't have to be like a bad thing or anything, I guess, mm -hmm. which I guess I, I, there's this idea in my mind that like, it's like, like I'm cheating or something. <laughs> um, so I guess that's something to just 
look at, I suppose, in a certain way. I know what you mean about it feeling like it's cheating. It's definitely not cheating, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chula Dasa actually has a policy about uh, medication, which is, uh, this is not really uh, directly to, to what you're talking about, but it's, it's kind of, I think, relevant. Um, if you go and do a retreat at, uh, at, at uh, Cochise Stronghold, he has you sign an agreement that if you're on any kind of medication, you will not discontinue the medita medication during the retreat. Because it's very common for people to have the experience as they get deeper into the retreat, oh, I don't need the medication anymore, this is great. And then it, it turns out that actually dropping the medication, and this is more antidepressant stuff than, than, uh, right. than, um, than Ritalin or something like that. But it's kind of the same idea if you think about it. It's like, you know, this is a thing that is helping me to be in a certain default state. And uh, why mess with that default state in an uncontrolled way? Um, so uh, what I would actually suggest that you might want to try investigating, and this is not based on personal experience, so take this with a grain of salt, would be when you get to the point where, you're, where you have really good stability of attention when you're on Ritalin, then it might be interesting to see, well, what, what's it like if I meditate before I take the Ritalin, right? Um, and then, because you may find that, that you have fewer obstacles but, than, than you used to, but more obstacles than you normally do. And then that gives you an opportunity to work on those obstacles in a more subtle way. And then you take the Ritalin and then you're like really smooth. You know, so <laughs> or not. I mean, you could also find that at some point you don't need to take it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't even worry about that. I mean, if it's useful to you, just take it. Yeah. Can I add a couple things? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I had a couple things I wanted to say. I mean, one is that I think it's really interesting to have this question about like when you think something is cheating and like what that could mean. Like, like what would it mean to cheat? Like that to me implies some kind of mindset where the goal is to <laughs> defeat some opponent or to. <laughs> defeat yourself but like is cheating even possible and i guess on that note i'm reminded of i've studied some with tucker peck and been to some retreats with him and you know one thing i've heard him say a few times is like you know if there was a pill that would give everyone enlightenment he would tell everyone to take it like you know the goal is to you know relieve suffering not to beat some opponent so that's all i want to say yeah that's that's it's interesting like i so i hang out with jeffrey martin sometimes and he's like obsessed with coming up with tools for for uh, creating awakened states of mind. So like he's got this, this ultrasound device that, that uh, it's like a focused ultrasound that, that stimulates the, a certain part of the brain. If you want to use it, you go and you get an MRI and then they put the MRI into the computer and they have all of this like really fancy uh, stereotactic uh, computer controlled stuff that targets the, the ultrasound and hits that particular part of the brain. And, uh, and it basically the function of it is, is Essentially, it stabilizes. It kind of, kind of breaks up the the uh, the the um, the problem finding loop, um, and so you wind up in a in a temporary non symbolic state when you're experiencing this uh, this stimulation, or or for a while afterwards. So it's pretty interesting. It's it's definitely you know Jeffrey's total motivation is is exactly what you were saying, like coming up with a with an awakening pill. So. <laughs> Or whatever, and I, and I guess by by cheating, I didn't necessarily mean like like sort of beating something, but more like um, like 
like I'm not necessarily developing some of the skills that would need to be developed maybe um like it's it's sort of bypassing an area that uh maybe could be developed in a way um where that like eventually I might not need to rely on a medication but I think you pointed out something very apt which is that you know maybe just taking it for now and working on the skills that can I don't know get me a little bit further there and then sort of going back and developing those other skills sort of separately maybe at a later point but I guess not worrying about it so much for now might be uh, a more productive path overall. Yeah. Also, um, if you look at uh, like, so I, I know a lot of people who've studied with Chula Dasa and done, done TMI for a long time. And it's not uncommon for people to go back and, and actually review all of the stages, starting with stage one, all the way up to stage 10 after they get to stage 10, because the first time they get to stage 10, they're at stage 10, but some of the skills that they're using to be at stage 10 are not actually as good as they could be. And so going back and working on the skills again after they've gotten to that point is actually really fruitful. And and the situation I think would be very much analogous for you where like, it's not like you're not learning the skill. You're just not learning the skill with the setting set to really hard. So set the setting to easy, learn the skill, then maybe turn it up to medium learn the skill again and you'll get better at it and then turn it up to hard and learn it again. And you may find that, that, you know, you don't need the Ritalin anymore at all, but you know, whether you do or not, isn't that important matters is whether you get the result. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a musician. So it seems sort of analogous to like setting the tempo lower and playing the thing and then slowly increasing the tempo or something. That's a great analogy. And to continue the analogy, if there's a part that's not working, it doesn't matter, it will reveal itself regardless eventually. And so, um, and then you just address it and find whatever way is most effective to address it, which might be reducing the medication or just doing a slightly different technique or any, anything, you know, so it's, um, I almost see it as, um, as just, I find it most helpful to just see it as just yet another environmental factor. And it's the um, sense that I have control over whether I take it or not, that makes it seem more significant in how it's affecting me and that maybe I should control it more. But if you just let it be like another factor of life, like whether, you know, the climate and that you can't control it and just kind of go with it and just do what you do, then that's actually more helpful. And it's still possible to, you know, evaluate how it's working for you and still have that perspective, I think. And then last but not least, one thing I struggled with is appearances. And it wasn't just, I never had too much problem about wondering if I was cheating, but I thought that other people would think I was cheating. 
because it's pretty well known that anybody who takes it can suddenly concentrate better. And and given how much um, dullness everybody has most of the time, it's no surprising that something that stimulates the brain would help anybody, you know, attend for a while. But so yeah, I had to struggle a lot with other people knowing and what I thought they were thinking, which meant that that's probably what I was thinking. So <laughs> just more thoughts. Yeah. I can I can definitely relate. Well, yeah, I appreciate everyone's thoughts. It's it's been very helpful. I'll I'll uh give the floor back to everyone else. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Who's next? Okay, well, it's been nice talking to you all. <laughs> yeah, that worked really well last time. <laughs> One, one, one thing I'll say is uh, related to that conversation that we kind of touched on, but just that, um, you know, to me, it's, it's very relevant is just the question. Um, when we're talking now, do you have any way to talk louder or get closer to your mic? Sure. Um, so the, the question <laughs> that you. I was thinking about was, um, why do we practice, right? And we don't practice like to progress. It's, this is not like something we have to do this is not yeah there's not there's there's not that 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 pressure or at least there there shouldn't really really be that pressure right this the reason why we practice is at least i mean i think the best reason to practice is in practicing we learn and grow right so hence i think that this is exactly what i think your guys are saying in terms of like the, the setting of the difficulty and if you are learning and growing as you are, you know, taking the medication, then like, hey, that's that's good. That's that's awesome. That's that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Um, your actual quote performance, I mean, is to me that's that's meaningless. Um, I mean, and hopefully over time, like you are, your performance is improving, and then there you go. That's that's meaningful. Um, so I just wanted really wanted to, to say that. Thanks. I have a question more about logistics, I guess, of, of meditating. Um, and I think I possibly know the answer, but I'm also hoping by asking this, I will increase my motivation to, to take people's advice. Um, but I'm curious of just a couple things like what, you know, there's um, in, in the mind illuminated, um, one of the recommendations is to sit for X number of minutes. But I also get the sense from just talking to people and reading online that's like, oh, always sitting more is better. Um, so I'm just curious to hear people's thoughts on, you know, the best way to structure, you know, how long you sit and like when you do it throughout the day. Um, and I know like, I think it was Carrie had mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, and I've been meaning to take this advice and still haven't done it, but of like sitting twice a day could be a fruitful thing to do. Um, so just curious to hear more about people's thoughts on, you know, how long to sit for and if you structure that and then like, do you mix in walking meditation or doing the, the mindful or the, the daily review? So just curious, there's like a lot of different pieces and like what people have found to be a fruitful way of sort of structuring the different aspects of everything you could do and for how long. So I'll oh, go ahead, Rufusaurus. 
Uh, you can go first. I'll just say, if I have anything to add, I'll say it after. I think you should go first. Very clever. <laughs> All right. So um, the, the first thing I would say about that is uh, what, you, what you want to be doing is benefiting from the longer meditation time. So it's worth investigating whether you're benefiting from it. If you, for example, you might find that you can meditate for an hour and a half, but that the last 45 minutes of the meditation are basically you're not really doing anything useful. You're just kind of sitting there zoned out. You know, you're tired of whatever it was that you were struggling with for the first 45 minutes. And so you're just like, you know, flattening out. Um, in that case, it's probably not fruitful to sit for 45 minutes. Or sorry, for an hour and a half. You'd probably be better off sitting for 45 minutes. You want to, you want to finish your meditation strong. You don't want to finish your meditation like, you know. So, but uh, there definitely, I mean, Chula Dasa encourages people to meditate for longer than an hour uh, once they get to the point where that's fruitful because um, you definitely do get deeper as time progresses. And so, you know, you'll find yourself in a deeper place. And if, if you're able to maintain the practice for the, for the full sit, however long that is, you will find yourself likely in a deeper place at the end of the sit than, in, you know, in the middle. So definitely worth, worth doing if you can. Um, Chula Das's recommendation, and I'm repeating Chula Das's recommendation because um, I kind of suck at doing walking meditation, true confessions. Um, but his recommendation is like if you have, say, you know, um, an hour and a half to spend doing practice, then do an hour of meditation and a half hour of walking meditation. Um, if you have more time than that, then it might be nice to do uh, you know, some meditation and then do some walking meditation, then do some more meditation. You know, so like in a retreat setting, he actually tends to break up the, the sits. So you'll do, um, and, and what you're doing there is you're actually, you'll do like maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minute sit. Um, you'll come out of that sit and you'll do a really good solid walking meditation. So you're not letting go of, of uh, the, the state that you were in at the end of the sit but you're just changing what you're doing. And so it gives you like a little refresher and uh, you know, gives you some energy and some joy from like just having a nice little walk or whatever. And then, but maintaining concentration while you're walking and then come back and sit down on the cushion again and you get a little bit deeper still and you can, you can keep the momentum up throughout the day as you're doing a, a retreat practice. But uh, uh, yeah, he definitely encourages people not, for example, to just sit, also walk. Um, and you know, the mindful review doesn't need to be like a big, long practice. I mean, it's, it's not about time. It's about effectiveness. Like, are you, are you actually doing a mindful review successfully? Um, so you kind of have to judge for yourself how that's going. Um, one thing to do with the mindful review is, is, and this is something that, that, uh, my Tibetan lineage was really into is do it six times a day briefly. So like you'll stop and review every two or three hours throughout the day for like five minutes. And then, uh, you know, the nice thing about that is that you have a, a clear recollection maybe of what happened in the last two or three hours. Whereas if you only do it at the end of the day, trying to remember what happened at the beginning of the day is challenging. So it maintains a little more continuity, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time. I mean, you could even do it for like one minute every three hours, as long as, as long as it's a good, review during that minute. Cool. Thank you for the advice. Mm -hmm. I don't have super much to add, although to say I've been through just a bunch of different things. I don't think there's any one right answer to it. Um, 
I think one pattern I fell into that was dangerous for me, and I don't want to, um, I guess I'll just caution it as a possibility, is that I think for a while I was doing much too high a ratio of walking to um, sitting meditation. You know, I think the um, the sitting is just, I mean, it's, it's more challenging to do and start. It's less attractive, but I think it's actually easier to do fairly well. Um, I think for me, the walking could often devolve into something that was pretty close to just going for a walk. And so that was really pleasant, but it was not giving me nearly as much meditative benefit. So I found that for me, I have to, I ha now it's pretty calm, pretty um, dialed in, but I found I really um, made sitting much more of a priority relative to walking. Um, so now what I do is I do at least two 45 minute sits every day. And sometimes I'll do one in the morning and one in the evening. Uh, or sometimes I'll do a 45 minute sit and then immediately a 30 minute walk and then 45 minute sit again. And I don't actually, I feel like both of those can work great. And I think doing some, some days and some of the others could be fine too. Um, I also do find mindful review to be very helpful. So I recommend it. Say something about sitting twice a day. So I found a huge difference between doing one sit a day and two two a day. Um, this is mostly about the psychology around the sits. So um, if a sit goes not well, or I really struggle with some obstacle that I've been struggling with, um, like it's especially bad one sit, uh, it seems as if it almost doesn't matter because I know that I'm going to sit again in like 12 hours. Uh, it doesn't seem like a whole day is going to pass and I'll sort of forget about meditating and then remember again. Um, the obstacle and what I, how I dealt with it in my previous sit is really on my mind by the time I sit down uh, the next time. Uh, there's also this interesting, uh, this like sense of momentum, but the second sit in the day somehow feels like it just, I don't know, goes more organically, it's more natural. Um, that's a pretty powerful effect I noticed too. And um, another thing that's sort of weird is that it kind of, um, the sits start to punctuate the day the way that like sleep starts to punctuate, like punctuates the day. Like um, I kind of think of the day as like the part of the day before my first sit, then the part of the day between the sits, and then the part of the day after the sits. Um, that's a really different way of thinking about just my day-to-day -day schedule than, than the like, I'm awake now, oh, now I'm asleep and the next day starts. Uh, that sounds sort of, I don't know, I, I'm, maybe hard to express, but that's actually a big thing that makes meditation a much more meaningful part of my life, something that's on my mind all the time. Um, yeah, I found the two sits a day really made a huge difference. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. As a follow-up for that, uh, Ted, you mentioned using the micro review every two or three hours. Uh, I don't recall seeing in the book anything about something like Shinzen's, I don't remember the name, uh, Quick Hit, something like that, that he recommends doing whenever you can, you're on a, on a line waiting for something, you use it. Uh, does Philosasa have, have something like that? Something you, you can do whenever during the day to just to help your practice? I, I don't know. I think the, the momentum, as Joe said. And I, I, I should consider it 
for the last few sessions to split my, my sittings as you scheduled uh, into a 45. I accidentally tested that because I, I wasn't able to do a full sitting in one day. So I had to return later and it worked pretty well. So I have been wondering how to, I don't know, spread my, my practice during the day. If, if Chulandata has anything else to, I don't know, to do besides the sitting and the walk meditation, something you can do whenever you are, you have extra time waiting for something, for example. So, um, first of all, I, I don't know whether Chuladasa specifically recommends something similar to Shenzhen Young's quick hits, but it's certainly something that's come up, and I think he's, I would be really shocked if he said anything bad about that plan. Um, it's, it, uh, it's something that I certainly recommend, uh, and, and sometimes do, but usually don't, because, you know, it's hard to remember to, to do these things, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a good practice to do. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I'm a little bit sleep deprived. And so, so my, my short term memory has, has lost whatever the thing that you said at the end there. I'm sorry. Uh, About spreading the, the practice during the day. Uh, spreading the. Yeah. Spreading two senses, one of uh, splitting the, the sittings, for, for example, instead of one hour in the morning, I do 45 in the morning and 45 in the evening. Yeah. And the other, in the other senses is the, that type of practice that you can do anywhere whenever you have a couple of minutes. Yeah, so uh, go ahead, Gilbert. Well, I mean, almost I could present the question to you, right? What's something you could do every, anywhere, everywhere, pretty much, right? If you're standing in line, you know, what's, what, what, what would you answer that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can always pay attention to your breath or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and one thing I will say is, uh, Chula, I listened to a lot of his uh, Dharma talks online. Um, he heavily emphasizes, like, you know, having continuous mindfulness, like all the time. And that's, that's what you're, you're going for. Just um, more and more powerful mindfulness and then more and more continuous mindfulness. Um, he also talks a lot about um, not just the mindful review, but just like trying to do like a continuous mindful review. So I think the biggest thing is giving, it's kind of like giving your mind a job. Right. And, and, and he kind of just says like, you're, you, you kind of want to be doing that more and more um, just throughout your practice. So like, you know, you're being more and more mindful of your speech, you know, what's coming out of your mouth, mindful of just your internal mental state. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, he, and I, I don't think I've heard him. He hasn't broken it down as to like, you know, do, um, I mean, he, he just, he recommends it all, right? Like he kind of recommends it all. It's like, you know, the goal is to always be doing, uh, um, you know, working on being more and more mindful. And then I do also know that he, uh, it's in the, one of the beginning chapters, he talks about the importance of, uh, you know, having your entire life kind of foster mindfulness, not being like that leaky bucket. Um, so not, you know, like, or reducing the amount of time that you're just really like dulling the mind or engaging in this kind of mindless activity. So, so yeah, so he talks about it, but he talks about it in a different way. And I think um, he kind of is always emphasizing the whole continuous part, 
Meanwhile, Shinzen's like, okay, wait, no, these are some discrete things you can do. And there's pros and cons to each approach. I mean, one potential con of like the emphasizing the discrete thing is people may think, oh, you know, I just got to do, uh, you know, a little bit here and there, and then wait, I, I can completely let it go. And, and I think that's not, after saying that, I think that's maybe a false choice, but, but yeah, so those are, those are some thoughts. I've got a specific resource to potentially uh, suggest. Um, Sayada Utejaniya, uh, he's a Burmese teacher. Uh, his his whole thing is like uh, practices for cultivating continuous mindfulness, like in every waking moment, essentially. Um, and a lot of his, um, yeah, I'll write the name in a moment, but um, yeah, he has he has a lot of um, Western students like, um, oh yeah, Dhamma Everywhere. <laughs> that's one of his books. Um, that's how it's spelled. I'll just, Tejania, that's how it's spelled. I'll put it in the chat. Um, uh, Alexis Santos is one of his students, teaches a lot of sort of in the same style. Um, he doesn't have a book or anything yet, but if you can ever go on a retreat with him, he's great. Or if you can listen to his Dharma talks um, that are on that one big uh, insight meditation society website that has the big giant database of Dharma talks. Um, and I think it's Steve Armstrong is another one of his students that teaches in that style or one of the Armstrongs. Yeah. But he has a lot to say about that kind of stuff. Well, and, and from my own experience, um, I, the way I think about it is there's kind of like two, two different ways <clears throat> to really focus on building up that practice throughout the day to spread it, as you're saying. One is something like kind of micro hits or, or just, you know, discrete moments of practice throughout and more and more of that and trying to, trying to put more and more of that in your day. And then the other thing that I think is, in, you know, very, very useful is sort of having, trying to have like a background practice. Um, and so if you're doing something, just uh, trying to be aware of the breath maybe as you're doing it, or it could be trying to be aware of your body as you're doing it. So you don't get so completely lost. Um, and so, or, or kind of just like, you know, kind of checking in and, okay, wait, am I aware of the breath? And um, in my experience, I just, one of the things that I really started doing was just being more and more continuously mindful of, you know, my breath and body as I'm going throughout the day. Um, and that was just incredibly useful to do. And it just sort of naturally, I think, develops and grows from there. But you just, you know, you, if you give your mind a task and, um, you know, you, if you can find that task you know, kind of intrinsically rewarding, then you just kind of just do it more and more. And then it, you do see all the, you know, the, the growth and, and benefits of doing that. Hey, Gilbert, thanks. That's really helpful. One thing I, I tend to notice, and I know I fell into this when I was starting with TMI, and I'm still kind of, I, I sometimes think people just really feel that TMI is a cushion practice, you know? I mean, I've seen a lot of people on Reddit and a lot of people questioning, you know, how do I do this off the cushion? And built into that question and frustration and confusion is the sense that somehow we should be figuring out how to shoehorn cushion practice 
into off-the-cushion daily life practice. And I don't think that's what Chiladas is saying, but I do think that it's a real challenge for folks that are teaching or, you know, facilitating to help us understand and translate what that, you know, what that really means. And that's why I appreciate what Gilbert's saying, but it's sometimes it feels like I'm trying to, like I, I'm a big fan of Tanjania, Tanjania and, you know, he's a uh, continuous awareness kind of guy, but those are not TMI terms. Those are like, that's a whole different, that's a Vipassana practice. It's very, it's, it's, it's phrased very differently. And I try to incorporate these different concepts in my practice, but it's, it, it's, it's kind of conceptually, it, it can be kind of a challenge. And, you know, I, I do think that it would be wonderful over time if, you know, teachers and training and that kind of stuff can really, I know y'all are working on this, but I do see this as being a real key issue of how to better understand TMI. It's that off, it's, it's how to bridge that instinct to try and do TMI cushion practice off the cushion. Now, like for me, example, like even yesterday, for me, aversion, you know, I mean, the way I try to shoehorn it is when aversion arises off the cushion, that's a practice opportunity. Yesterday I was pulling out of Whole Foods and, the line was, you know, the traffic light was stuck and I was, you know, trying to pull into, you know, waiting to pull in and someone pulled ahead of me and cut me off, you know. I mean, traffic, we're all driving around. And he glared at me. I didn't do anything. I really didn't pull any stuff on the road, but someone acted like he was glaring at me and stuff. Now, old Kevin, before TMI Kevin, would have been all pissed off and, oh, you know, had, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I, and I, but I felt the aversion arise, and I said, boom, my brain suddenly went into practice mode. And I'm like, first of all, I didn't react. I didn't drive crazy. There might have been a time in the past when it might have affected my driving, actually. Not that any of us have ever had that happen, right? But, you know, exactly. And I actually slipped into meta mode, you know? I actually was like, not only was I able to not manifest personally, right, but I was, for the first time, like I was able to even transition into compassion for him and kind of meta for him, right? That's off the cushion, right? And for me, recognizing, having awareness of simple stuff like when aversion arises, that alone for me has been a huge thing, you know, and that's been both TMI and Tajania, right? But my question, one of my questions is, to me, I see this, I really do cherish uh, TMI and Chuladasa, but sometimes I feel like there is this barrier in reading TMI, this, this stage approach that doesn't seem to fit off the cushion. Yet I don't, yet if you talk with Chuladasa, he would, you know, he would, you know what I mean? He would convey this. So I'm wondering, Ted and Sam and Gilbert and stuff, you, do you hear what I'm saying? And is, do you have any thoughts about how to bridge that a little more smoothly. You know what I'm saying? Book number two. Book number two is coming, he's, he's working on it. Yeah, I mean, one thing to say about that, uh, Kevin, is that, that um, you, you, the story that you told, like the guy in the, in the Whole Foods parking lot, who did that practice? Were you doing a practice there? No. 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 What happened was the metacognitive introspective awareness that you have generated as a result of your TMI practice was, was there for you when you needed it. So, so, uh, so 
the, the, the whole point of like doing the walking meditation and doing the seated meditation and doing the mindful review is that it's it, like we, we, all, we all have this idea that, that like me, I have to do this practice. I have to make myself into this person that does this other thing that's different than the way that I normally do things. And that's not completely untrue because we do need to do the practice. But, um, but really what's happening is the practice is transforming us. It's not that like you're going to sit there, you know, you're going to go through your day and you're going to be like going like, mindful, I have to be mindful, I have to be mindful, remember to be mindful. That's crazy. You don't want to do that. You're going to be miserable. Like that's not how you make yourself mindful. The way you make yourself mindful is exactly the same way that you do it on the cushion. On the cushion, what do you do? You're sitting there, you're trying to follow the breath and uh, you forget and then you notice that you forgot. And you're like, yay, I noticed, yay. Well, that's exactly what you want to do off the cushion, right? You know what your problems are off the cushion. It's not like it's any mystery to you. So, so what you really want to do off the cushion is the same thing. It's like, you know, you're going through your day and you're kind of in like autopilot and suddenly like something comes up and you notice it and you're like, yay, I noticed. That's how you develop your mindfulness during the day. You, you, it's the same exact reward structure. And exact reward structure. Hmm? Rufusaurus, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I super love that answer. That's so insanely great. I am, I guess I'm really struck by something that like, you know, sometimes Tucker or someone else will say, and I think this is true, like a lot of the questions I see on the Reddit, like not all the questions here, but like a lot of the questions I get, it's like, you know what would be great? It's like, if you just shut up and follow the instructions. And I feel like it's really hard to convey. Like, I, I wasn't ready to hear that when I started. Like, you know, I was doing it and like, I had all these questions about like how it would work or how it would change my life. Or like, I used to read all these Reddit threads on like, how do you be mindful off the cushion? And the answer is, if you just shut up and follow the instructions, it's gonna happen. And like reading a hundred more Reddit threads doesn't help it happen any quicker. But like, if you're the kind of person who needs to read those Reddit threads, it's not gonna help you to hear just shut up and follow the instructions and it will happen. You know, one thing that might be useful that, you know, I also worked with um, Upasak, Upaka, um, Upali. Upasaka. And was, yeah, and one thing he gave me that was really useful is to say like, you know, every month or so check in and say like, is this having benefit in your life? Like, how is your life different? And, you know, maybe I would say to someone like, well, why don't you just try following the instructions for two or three months and like observe what's happening in your life. And like, if your life's not getting any better then maybe something's not working but like if your life's getting better you can just keep letting that happen and it's okay and um yeah i don't know how to tell people to just follow up. it it wouldn't have worked to tell me to just shut up and follow the instructions so i don't know why it would work to tell anyone else that even though it's the right advice yeah i mean one thing to bear in mind about the shut up and follow the instructions thing is like you know why do we talk about stuff it's, it's useful to talk about stuff. It's, it helps us to get into that frame of mind. So it's not bad. It's just that the thing, the thing that I worry about when people get into this mode of like, what's the practice I should be doing is that kind of suggests to me that they didn't actually notice that there was an explicit practice that you were supposed to do. And so it's good to, it's good to go in and notice that and not, not worry about like trying to invent some other practice. You know, it's it's great to talk about it, but just don't don't try to invent another practice because chances are what you invent won't be as effective as as just doing you know the practice that Chuladasa teaches or that that uh, you know uh, that Sayadaw uh, uh, Tahania uh, teaches or whatever. 
Tejania. Tejania. Well, of course, do we really know how these things are pronounced? No. <laughs> That's how a student pronounces it, at least. Though. Yeah, well, like, half of the, I, I was, I, when I started with Chuladasa, I was pronouncing his name Kuladasa, and, and, and some people, like, they hear Chuladasa, 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 and they still say Kuladasa, because, you know, it's just, we all suck at pronunciation on one de- to one degree or another. But anyway, uh, Carrie actually had her hand up. Uh, f- so let So um, what the, a couple thoughts were coming as I was hearing this whole conversation and that I tied back to um, Rodrigo's initial question about motivation and that we're often motivated to, um, that we want, or that we're goal-oriented and are aiming to progress, and that there's a statement in TMI that really helps me when I remember to, um, and it was said in a different context, but it was the, um, about setting the stage so that accidents are more likely to happen, which was stated for insights. But I also see it as a statement that's really relevant for everyday mindfulness, too. That the practice, that instead of having it, that the practice should be causing a goal, it's basically just developing you in a way so that the right accidents of everyday life start happening more easily. And that that takes away the... um, um, the attachment on the methods and so that it's still possible to kind of evaluate which methods work best for me um, and think about it but it then doesn't become carried away because there's a disconnect between the methods and the result because it's you're just developing yourself but the accidents are independent of that almost it's maybe it's just a mind trick that I'm playing to not be attached to the outcome. Um, if it is, it works for me. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's like your, it's like your, um, uh, <laughs> oh, the sleep deprivation. It's, it's like, it's like your, your, uh, you know, calling it an accident. I mean, basically you're developing a habit pattern and, and the habit yes. pattern first starts to arise as something that feels kind of accidental, but over time it yes. starts to become, very uh, very con- consistent yeah and that's what i meant the accident was just pulling the word from the other yeah. context um because it was um because that's what it feels like yeah yeah okay i think rodrigo was next yeah carrie uh, i can really resonate with that i think what you 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 were alluding to was something like uh there is a quote that is, I don't know where it's from, but something like enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes you accident prone, something like that. Yes. And oh, uh, actually I wanted to add something to what Kevin said. said and what, what I feel sometimes <laughs> is that maybe that's what you're saying, I don't know. Uh, there is a, a certain gap maybe because okay sure yeah you're re- reposaurus you're you're right 
you should shut up and into the practice and that's definitely an issue but at the same time if you're already doing the practice you feel okay so I can do the practice and I can wait until someday during the day I get mindful or until someday I get the, the introspective the metacognitive introspective awareness and then I, I, I can do the practice of cushion but it seems like there is a gap okay during the sitting I am practicing Outside of the day, I'm waiting for the practice to manifest, which is different from when you are at a retreat, for example. At a retreat, you practice during sitting, you practice during walking, you practice during lunch. So uh, what I, I think Kevin was alluding to is how do you take the practice, not only during the sitting, but during the day without having to wait, okay, when metacognitive awareness develops, then I'll get to use it during the day. But until there, all I have to do is wait. So checking in. That's not. Yeah, yeah that's checking not what we're talking about. I, I understand. I understand. I just mean that, that that's a, a sensation that there is a gap. I, yeah. I understand that no one is saying that you shouldn't practice it or anything like that. But there is that sensation that there is a gap, and sometimes I don't know. Uh, I have before starting TMI, I used to do walking meditation a lot. Basically, only walking meditation, but. More on, more on the drive vipassana side of things. And I did it for three years uh, in a row. And it helped me a lot. It, uh, meditation was awesome. But then I, I felt the, the need to develop more stable attention, something like that. That's when I, I went to TMI. But I couldn't, to this day, practice walking meditation uh, with TMI. Even though I have three years of walking meditation every day, I can't do walking meditation with TMI because I don't. It's hard to to connect the the, the two practices. The uh, when I practice TMI sitting, it's great. It's it's exactly what I what I, I want to be practicing right now. But when I'm uh, I'm up and when I'm doing something else, I don't know how to connect the TMI practice to everything else. So uh, you're talking about walking meditation or just generally? Any 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 kind of. Of meditation during the day that you're not sitting. Walking, of course, is a is a formal practice, but also informal practice, something yeah. that you do when you're not in a session. So, um, what I was getting at when I said that 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 it's not actually unspecified what to do off the cushion is that the mindful review is what to do off the cushion. But what there's a tendency to think that the mindful review is just something you do at the end of the day. The thing is, if you do the mindful review at the end of the day, very quickly you'll find yourself thinking about what you're going to do in the mindful review during the day. And so that actually becomes a practice. And, and the way that it becomes a practice is, you know, you'll be going along on autopilot and then you'll notice something that relates to the mindful review. And that's exactly the same as in stage two, when you're going along daydreaming and suddenly you notice that you've lost the breath. It's the same exact practice. It's just in a different context. So, um, I don't know if he ever explicitly says that, but that's basically what, if, if you do the mindful review, um, even if you only do it once at the end of the day, but you spend a decent amount of time on it so that it's like a topic, then, uh, then that's automatically gonna, gonna start to produce the, the, the mindfulness uh, during the day. And then eventually that will, you'll start to find yourself becoming more and more mindful over time because you're, you've got this mindful review that you're going to do at the end of the day as a consistent in, intention that, that, that just pops up every so often during the day. 
um, but also the, 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 the cushion practice will feed in. Now, Chuladasa doesn't actually recommend doing uh, uh, Mahasi-style noting as a walking around practice until you get to stage six, or stage seven, actually. Um, because, you yeah, know, for I some... Yeah, before it came Yeah, on. sure, yeah. For some people, it's fine. It, it, it's not like it's a bad practice or something, but, but a certain number of people have very bad experiences doing that practice, and so that's why he doesn't recommend it. And that's part of the gap that you're seeing. He's, he's not, you know, because that's an obvious practice to do during the day, right? That's a practice that's pretty straightforward to do when you're just, like, you know, in line or driving down the road or whatever. Um, but, you know, there are other practices you can do if you want to pick up some, some non-TMI practices that are a little bit less... Actually... Yeah, actually, the, the, your idea of using the mindful re review during the day is very good. I have never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know if he says anything like that in the book, but it, it's a good thing to, to try. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought of it. He doesn't say it in the book, but he's definitely suggested that multiple times. Like, I've heard him suggest that multiple times when I've been either, you know, on one of his Patreon calls or, uh, you know, just when he's teaching in retreat. He's, he's definitely into that now. So I think if he were going to redo the book, he would probably add that to that appendix. But, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, it's L'Esprit de Fiscalier, right? It's like you get, you get the book out and then you're like, oh, there's all these things I could have put in there. And also you learn from the questions that people ask. So, yeah, that, if there's a second edition, it wouldn't surprise me if he changes that. Sort of narrow focus and um, you know which when you're doing Mahasi Nodi it clearly changes um, kind of your ex or even if it's, it's subtle but it actually kind of somewhat significant but your experience of purification right you're it, it um, yeah and, and so and it, it, it changes your experience of purification and also um, it just seems like it's it's harder yeah I, I think i don't think i can i don't know how to put too much more but there is yeah there's something just fundamentally different about sort of mahasi noting and then it, it it you you're not allowing things to kind of to rise up in awareness and just kind of get cleared out in the background the balance of attention and awareness not being optimal yeah, I mean, you could, you could, you can say. I'm. Sh I, I think you would probably agree with that. Um, what I, what I would say about that is that I think that the I, I didn't use the noting technique exactly, but the dry, the dry personal techniques. I think they they rely something. They they rely more on your ability to quickly jump from one thing to the other. Mm -hmm. So I think the the when purifications come up, you have to deal with them as fast as you can because if you don't, you get carried away. So when you develop enough stable stability of attention, you have something like an anchor that you can you can hold still while everything comes up and you can just observe. While uh, in noting techniques, you have to to be quickly 
dealing with everything that is coming up and going from one thing to the other. And if you aren't able to do that, then you get, I don't know, you stumble and get Well, I think we lost that again. Did we? You're, you're muted. You're, you're muted, Ted. Yeah, sorry. Uh, um, the reason I'm in Prague is I'm in a networking conference, and uh, one of the things that the networking conference does is they rewire the network in the hotel to, to support the conference network. Uh, oops. Looks like I'm off again. of going through that, 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 that laid out in TMI, um, just seems more well-rounded and, and like a more gentle sort of uh, natural kind of progression than yeah, definitely. Just forcing, which I mean, clearly like works and, and you know, it, it, it can work to, to um, you know, to just hard charging, yeah. doing it, but you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't recommend it personally yeah for, for me personally uh, it's something that i'm glad i did i i i, I I'm, I'm really happy that i did but whenever people ask me okay where should i start i point to tmi start with tmi because that's that seems that it's the, as you said it's more rounded it's something like okay i can i can rely i can recommend that and i know that people would, would have a good practice and will have a good path but uh, yeah i understand it's also there's just so much more guidance and description about it about how yeah, what yeah. to do in the beginning because i mean it's obviously i mean everyone has to deal with dullness right everyone has to deal with distractions right and um <laughs> you know it, it depending on where you are i mean there are different things you have to kind of be aware of and worry about to put, put antidotes to right like so um you do have to kind of go through some of these stages, but it just the practice of T TMI, of course, um, seems to develop a well-rounded set of skills that are just, you know, very useful. I have a noting question for you guys. You seem to have some experience with it. So um, I have some experience with TMI and it's, it's making me very confused about trying to follow the basic instructions for noting. Um, the instructions for noting are really sparse uh, and terse, as you guys noted. Uh -huh. Um, but uh, with my team, like, um, with my TMI experience, I can definitely distinguish between attention and awareness. Uh, when I'm trying to note, uh, I don't understand. So I'll just tell you what happens if I don't apply any intentions or do anything when I'm noting. Uh, my mind focuses on whatever object happened to arise first, and it just stays fixed there. Nothing happens. I don't note any other objects because they're, in my mind, they're classified as distractions. So something I should not jump to for no reason. Uh, if a particularly strong distraction comes up, I switch to that object. But uh, I feel like I'm not doing what noting is supposed to get me to do because I don't switch objects very often. So I, I have this question. Um, should I be switching to objects in peripheral awareness um, intentionally? Uh, or should I, should I let any subtle distraction kind of carry me away? Is, like, is that the idea? I'm, I'm okay with doing that because I understand noting is a different 
technique, uh, like the goals are different. Uh, I just like to, I guess, understand the noting instructions in TMI language. That would, that would make, make it make sense to me. I mean, I'm not a teacher of my, I didn't, you know, anything like that. What sure, so yeah. I could say what they might say, and it could be exactly what you said. It could be that note everything, right? If you, you, you note the distraction, but then you bring it back, right? And that's what I, when reading, um, the, yeah, the manual of the Mahasi manual. Yeah, manual of insight. Yeah. Yeah. Manual of insight. That's what it, it sounded like, right? That, uh, the breath was your anchor and you're, you're noting the breath, but then there would be distraction. You would, you'd note it. Usually they do a du double noting and stuff, um, of what you note, but then you try to bring, bring your attention back. And that's what seemed to be the, you know, that's my understanding of it. Um, yeah. I have, um, I started out with Shenzhen um, briefly. Um, that was my first um, experience with mindfulness and guiding. And I pretty quickly hit a limit to what I felt it was being useful to me. Um, and that's why I came to TMI. But I think that that very first initial experience was extremely valuable for me just to kind of get a roadmap of my own mind. And also a very gentle kind of interesting introduction too that wasn't so frustrating. Just um, being open to sounds. And keep in mind this is a kind of a, like a, um, a completely untrained mind. So I didn't have any habit of having my attention staying on anything. So that wasn't a problem for me. Um, but just kind of recognizing um, how easy it was to just, Distinguish between sounds and sights and feelings and also between inner and outer and, and that was just a nice clear roadmap that meant that there was a lot of familiarity when I started doing um, just paying attention and I kind of appreciate that and it also kind of stimulated an awareness throughout everyday life and for a long time, I was trying to figure out how the two related to each other. Like, how is the noting that I was doing related to attention and awareness? And is noting paying attention to something or being aware of it? And I actually now think that that's not quite the way to think about it. That definitely it's attention at the beginning, but I'm not so sure about at the end that it might just be, you know, something way far out there. But Techniques shouldn't be used with each other and that you should stick with one technique and just kind of follow it through that other techniques might be kind of productive to it even if you were to focus only on them um, but he does say that TMI and his techniques are very compatible um, too but that it's probably easy to um, it's easy to misuse any technique, I think. 
or misinterpret. Hey, this is Kevin. What I got out when I read Manual of Insight, one thing that really struck me that how different the noting practice that he talks about is from the what Chuladasa seems, my understanding of what Chuladasa is trying to do with it. Like when I read it, I was really struck with the instruction, at least that I remember, where he's really wanting you to, to note everything you do. Like if you're going to sit up, stand, swallow, breathe, look left, look right. My, what I took from it was Mahasi is really trying to get you to realize, really working with intention, right? Really get to really realize what you don't realize, which is everything you do, there's intentions embedded with every little motion, every little twitch, every little, like when you're going to reach for a glass of water, you don't realize that you had, there was an intention there before you even realized it, you know? And, and I did that for a very brief while drove me crazy, you know, because it's really hard. But it was, it was instructive because I really did bring home to me anyway, wow, there really are all these little mini in, intentions that you weren't even really aware of before. And if you were going to make that be a, like a major, like long-term practice, I guess you really could develop a really profound depth of understanding for that. But, uh, you know, but then I was doing TMI and I, you know, TMI, the noting is for a different purpose right than that that's not i don't my understanding is that's not what um chuladas is really trying to go for because it's that's a whole different direction it's more to be to recognize the distractions and let go of them right to note the distractions uh, you know you know what i mean i mean uh not to try and have that this that mahasi style depth of of understanding you know what i mean um but they are different, but they, they can be. But the, anyway, that's what the sense I got. But, um, but then I don't do all that much. <laughs> I don't do the noting as much myself on the cushion as, as much. Um, um, but that's what I got, so I got out of the Mahasi anyway. Yeah, thanks, Kevin, uh, Carrie, and uh, Gilbert, who's now gone. Thanks, guys. So um, I have a feeling that my network is going to go down again, um, which doesn't mean that everybody has to stop, but I'm just saying. Uh, so uh, if there are any further questions or discussion, that would be great. Otherwise, uh, I might just uh, say goodbye. Maybe you can answer Carrie's question about why Chuladasa recommended not using the noting technique before TMI 6. You were oh. cut off and we didn't hear your answer. Sorry, the answer was that um, uh, noting um, doesn't give you stability of attention. I mean, it's actually, I think somebody else said the same thing. I, I, I heard somebody else saying this when I came back on one of the times that I got knocked off. Um, it doesn't give you stability of attention. And so um, what you have is momentary concentration. And uh, the problem with momentary concentration is that um, when you have a really powerful realization, you're just like, you don't have any, any place to, 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 to rest. There's, there's, no, there's no like, there's no stability. And, you know, for some people that's fine. Some people like have this moment of terror and then, and then they go right through it and it's fine. Other people wind up in uh, very unpleasant, persistent states uh, that can last for months or even years. 
And so, uh, so that's why Chuladasa recommends getting to stage six or stage seven before you do noting, because noting is a very powerful vipassana practice. It's not like he's saying don't do it. He's just saying make sure before you do it. First of all, there's two things you get. If by the time you get to stage seven, you've done all, you've you've, you've kind of picked all of the low hanging fruit in terms of purifications. So a lot of stuff that would have caused you to have really bad experiences during the insight process have been dealt with. Um, and that, so, so in all likelihood, if you have a powerful insight after stage seven, uh, you don't have, you don't have like some, some skeleton in the closet that's going to come out and, and attack you. Right. Um, and the other thing is that, that, uh, you know, the, the actual experience of insight can be very, uh, disturbing, but if you're, if you're basically in a state of mind where disturbing things don't really carry you away then you'll just be like, wow, that's disturbing. And then you'll be fine. And whereas if you're, if you're, if you don't have that kind of stability, like if you if your meditation state is more like stage two, then that really disturbing thing could wind up just like being a thing that you obsess about for the next six months or two years. And eventually you get tired of, of going through this obsessive loop. But I mean, I, I know people who've been like, I, there's a guy that I've been working with for, um, over a year now who's been in uh in an obsessive loop and hasn't been able to get out of it and he's just miserable and you know i can i can reason with him all i want and it doesn't help him so and you know his problem was he had a really powerful insight before he had any kind of stability of attention so and any purifications so he's just you know, it's 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 not a pretty sight. So so that's why you know Chuladasa is pretty down on starting out with noting. You know. So on that depressing note, does anybody else have any questions? <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess we should probably call it a day. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Wait. You're welcome. How does one get out of that? I don't know. Um, Drugs. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Jeffrey's uh, brain zapper. Um, so if, if you find yourself in that situation, it's probably worth talking to uh, Tucker because he's got a lot of experience with it. Yeah. And he's also a psychotherapist. Yeah. Uh, so the only, and, and he's had a fair amount of success getting people out of that. I don't know how he does it, though. So that's why I'm saying I don't know. Yeah, he had a bumpy ride. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> one thing that I can say is that one of the things that uh, I've learned with the, the dry side before TMI is that if you can get to a place where you can look at your own mess or your own sadness, your own terror, and be okay with it. Okay, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I'm in terror, but it's okay, it will change tomorrow. Maybe I won't be as sad, maybe I will, but it's okay that I'm feeling like this right now. I think that can help you to get a perspective in the sense that I just keep practicing, I keep going, I find someone to, to get help from, like soccer, for example, but uh, you don't get the problem is when you get in a in a place where you get uh, desperate because you don't see a way out and you, everything is, is terrible and and you you're in a loop and you can't get out of that. So you can if you can just 
okay, I'm okay, I'm, I'm not gonna die at this moment, I'm just sad, or I'm just in terror or something. I, I know that sounds weird, I'm just in terror, but at the same time, that's what it is, I'm just in terror. So I think that that can help, but yeah, uh, finding someone that can deal with that is, is a huge help. Yeah, unfortunately, I've I've tried that. Uh, I've I've tried making that suggestion, and it doesn't seem to help. But uh, if you if, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I, it's, it's like you can say that, but it's like it's not, it's not always possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>